And I wondered, what did Coretta Scott King, how did she actually feel, you know? How did Merle Evers cope when Medgar Evers, her husband, was shot in their driveway by Ku Klux Klansmen? And how did she go on to raise her children and um, and be strong in the face of, of such a loss? Like, um, I wanted to know the stories of these women, and I found that there just wasn't, there just wasn't a lot out there. We as women are often making sacrifices and decisions that are, are gut-wrenching, are difficult, all in an effort to support um, the people who we are with. And, and and we don't really have a place to talk honestly about that and, and the toll that it takes. And so that's where the idea for Marriage to the Movement really came in. Welcome back to Shade, the podcast where you'll hear conversations on race through the lens of creativity and activism with me, Lou Menser. Now we've reached season three together. I've enjoyed this new community we've created so much. I love your feedback, your support, and I wanted to start this show by thanking you for joining me in these conversations. Now, you'll notice some additions this season. Firstly, I'm connecting my guests, my new guests and my old guests for a whole new segment of the show. So stay tuned to the end of this episode to check that out. And from this episode onwards, we'll be sharing our appreciation with some listener gifts. So more on that at the end of the show too. This week, I'm in conversation with educator, diversity and inclusion director and mother of five, Ray King. Ray is married to civil rights activist, Sean King. Now, Ray and I talk about her new podcast with Sean that launches this month. We also talk about her work as an educator and diversity director. Now, Ray tells it like it is on being married to a very public civil rights activist. It's the one year anniversary too of the hugely successful media group, The North Star, which was started by her husband, Sean. And it includes the popular podcast, The Breakdown, and also the new show, Married to the Movement. I remember at the time of the launch, it was said, I think Sean said this actually, that we often talk about echo chambers. You know, we talk to people that already agree with us Mm -hmm. Um, but he made a really interesting point about that actually and he said that I used to think that this notion of preaching to the choir was a problem and we kind of use it in a bit of a pejorative sense but I've actually grown to adopt that perspective that the choir needs good preaching Mm -hmm. they need good information They need good tools and they need good insight. And that quote led me to think about how how we don't learn these tools at school. You know, how to speak up for ourselves, how to speak up about what's important to us. Yeah. You've decided to share your lives together in this new podcast that you're launching. So I want to talk about that show and then we'll move on a little bit to talk about educating children as well. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for for having me. And I, I want to say that the quote that you shared of Sean's um, about preaching to the choir, you know, 
I don't often think, my, you know, I think some people think my husband walks around saying brilliant things all the time. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that's not how it happens. Every now and then he says something and, I'm, and I am like, oh, wow, yeah, you know, I, I see why people listen to you because that was actually really smart. And um, the quote that you read, that's, that's one of those that um, I felt that way about. We do talk about preaching to the choir as if, you know, that is a waste of time and, and it doesn't matter. But listen, I grew up in church, first of all, and I sang in the choir. And I can tell you that uh, the choir is just as messy and the people who are in it are just as in need of preaching as the people in the pews. And so preaching to the choir is is not, um, it's not a bad thing. And to your point, um, we do need tools and, and we don't often get these tools for how to affect change. Um, from what we learn in school, there's a quote by a woman named Diane Nash, who was really um, at the forefront of the civil rights movement here in the United States. Um, women played a pivotal role. We don't know their names well enough. We don't know their stories well enough. And, and that's a shame. And um, actually part of what led me to do Married to the Movement, which I'll talk about in a second. But Diane Nash talks about the fact that when kids today are taught about the civil rights movement and, and, and they see it as a protest movement and they think all we need to do is show up in the streets with our signs and our slogans and those things have their place. They're, it's a rallying cry and it, and it it's a public demonstration that, you know, we are not okay with things as they are. But what Diana Nash goes on to talk about is the fact that we don't understand enough about what was happening behind the scenes to make those movements effective. It wasn't just the protests and it wasn't just the sit-ins. It was the the legislation that was happening that was being lobbied for, you know, behind the scenes by the NAACP and, and lawyers like Thurgood Marshall, who was um, the United States first black Supreme Court justice. You know, it was all of these things that were happening. It was the coordination um, taking place between different organizations, SNCC and the Student Nonviolent Coordinate Committee and um, all these different moving pieces that people had to plan, they had to make time to think about, they had to be strategic about. That's what made the, the protests and the sit-ins, those were the, the face of the movement, but none of that would have been effective if we weren't make, forming relationships and, and lobbying and pushing legislation and filing suits and, and all these things. Um, behind the scenes. And so you're right, we don't learn enough in our schools about that. And um, Sean is actually, um, his book is being published, um, set to come out in April, that's real, that's called Make Change, like how to make change. There's so many things that you can do and that we should be doing behind the scenes to make sure that our protesting is effective and is going to result in actual change. So I'm excited for people to be able to, to read that book and hopefully get some kind of marching orders, I guess, from it in terms um, to, to help them better understand some of the steps that need to happen um, that may not involve the more public shows of, you know, of protest. Mm -hmm. uh, but to your question about married to the movement. So uh, like I said before, we I, I often feel like we don't know enough about 
the women behind some of the the most important movements in in the world. Um, I, as you said, as some parts of our relationship are public, um, that's a very new, very recent development. I kept a low, very private profile all the way through this movement up until last year, really just last September. I was on social media, um, but privately, it was for my friends, it was for my family. I was using Facebook like everybody else uses Facebook, (laughs) posting pictures of kids and family vacations and, and different things like that. And I purposely shielded myself, shielded my children away from public consumption. I I just, I didn't want to have anything to do with the public work. And I think for a long time, I saw this as Sean's work over here. This is the thing that Sean does. Mm -hmm. And then this is my world over here. My world was education. I taught children in schools um, for about 16 years. It was raising my children. We have five kids. It was keeping our home life, you know, healthy and together and making sure we connected with friends. Like I saw that as my work. And so it was very siloed. And then last year, when Sean started the North Star, and um, really his public profile increased to a whole different level with the Breakdown podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's election season over here in the United States, and so he very publicly supports um, one of the candidates running, Bernie Sanders. Yep. And so his his he was already well known, and then last year it just you know, it went to a, a, a whole other level and it started to lead over into my life, this little life I had carved out for myself <laughs> in, in ways that made it very difficult, really impossible to continue to silo. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to work and people were asking me about it. I couldn't do a job interview without people already knowing who I was. Mm-hmm. My, um, my teenager's friends followed Sean and uh, were, were asking him questions and asking my daughter questions and coming to our home. And it less and less could I get away with this idea that, um, you know, Sean could have his work and I could have my work. And, and so things got really, really difficult about the fall of last year. I mean, people were just coming after Sean. You know, things were hard at the North Star. It was a, a startup. It didn't have any funding. And you completely publicly supported. No, you know, Series A, big capital funding with all these investors. It was completely funded by just people who believed in the vision of you know, media that could speak truth to power without having to be beholden to big advertisers or, you know, investors who had their own agenda. And and it was hard. It was so, so hard. And so I found myself really wanting to to hear or to gain wisdom from people that walked the path that I found myself walking. And I wondered, what did Coretta Scott King, how did she actually feel, you know, when when she felt alone or betrayed or scared or unsure or resentful even? How did she how did she deal with those things? How did Merle Evers cope when Medgar Evers, her husband, was shot in their driveway by Ku Klux Klansmen? And how did she go on to raise her children and um, and be strong in the face of, of such a loss. Like, um, I wanted to know the stories of these women, and I found that there just wasn't, there just wasn't a lot out there. 
um, I started listening to Coretta Scott King's book, um, Desert Rose, I believe is what it what it's called. And I got to know some of the history behind her and Martin's relationship and how they came to be together and how she was actually the one that taught him about the nonviolent movement. And she was an activist when they met and really, you know, he was on the path to be a, a preacher and, you know, and maybe even an academician. He was very bright, graduated from high school and college early, went on to earn his doctorate at a time where you weren't going to find many African-Americans who had access to be able to do that. So when he met her, she was already an activist. She was already attending meetings about, you know, peaceful protests and nonviolent movement. I still found that I... I just wanted a level of guidance. Like, okay, when this happened, I did this. When when this thing was said about me, I, you know, or my husband or my family, this is what kept me going. And so because I struggled to find that, I thought, you know, I think that we do a disservice sometimes as women when we silence ourselves. Yes. And um, when we don't tell our own stories in ways that people can see their themselves and their stories reflected. Um, and I want, I found myself wanting to have a record of this moment and this time and, you know, just my little place in it. And, and in case there ever came a day where somebody else wanted to know, Oh my gosh, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the spotlight this is hard, you know, I, I've made mistakes, I, how do I recover from them, you know, how do I love my spouse, you know, who is an activist in the midst of this turbulent time and, and raise children and keep a piece of myself in case anybody ever, you know, found themselves wanting to know how to reckon with this, because the truth of the matter is, I believe we're all married to movements in one way or another. Yeah. Um, it might not be, you know, this very public political activism. Um, but what I found when I started talking to women um, about this podcast and about their own lives is that we as women are often making sacrifices and decisions that are, are gut-wrenching, are difficult, all in an effort to support um, the people who we are with. And, and and we don't really have a place to talk honestly about that and, and the toll that it takes. And so that's where the idea for Married to the Movement um, really came in. I'm sorry, that was really long-winded. No, <laughs> wow, that hit home, that really hit home because that affects all of our our lives as partners. When do you have a launch date? Yeah, so the, the, um, the Ma- Married to the Movement is a product of the North Star, which, as I said earlier, is completely member-supported, and so it's actually going to be released on the North Star's website, um, which is brand new, um, and will be um, released publicly actually tomorrow, Valentine's Day, Frederick Douglass's birthday. Oh, wow. Um, and so as early as tomorrow, uh, members of the North Star will be able to listen to the trailer, and then the first episode will be available next Thursday. Oh, um, wow. And it'll release weekly um, every Thursday morning. Um for the next eight weeks and then it'll be it'll be available publicly um after that but our north star members will be able to listen to it first on our on our website and i was just really interested that you did mention um 
women who have walked the path before you, you know, and there wasn't much information about them and, and how they, they felt and, and what their experience was. And you mentioned Coretta Scott King, and, and I came across a quote of hers recently, actually, um, about women's role within the human rights movement. And she said, that women, if the soul of the nation is to be saved, I believe that you must become its soul. That was a really interesting quote to me about the importance of women um, as the soul of a nation. And as you said, you were a teacher for 16 years um, and you're a parent to five children. Um, I'm a parent also, but I'm a home educator. Um, she's not taught how to be, you know, at school, a critical thinker, how to challenge things, how to have a voice, all of these things. And so um, I got to the point where my my personal little act of um, resistance there was decide to home educate her. Um, I, I homeschooled my kids as well for about five years. Did um, you? I did for many of those um, same reasons. And so um, we were... Um, moving around a little bit and Sean was you know speaking all over the place and family has always been so very important to him he never wanted to sacrifice his time and, and relationship with you know me and the kids um, he didn't he, he's always been keenly aware Malcolm X was one of his biggest influences when when he was a young man and he he knew the unfortunate toll that Malcolm's work took on his family um and he never he never wanted that and so when he traveled he always wanted us with him and I was teaching in public school and the kids were in school and it just really wasn't feasible and so I decided to homeschool them and we moved to Southern California which is not um not a whole lot of black people in in Southern California and I knew that if they were going to be in school they were going to have um a very particular experience that didn't speak to who they were in their identity. Um, okay. And they were going to have to battle with that. And so it's one thing to have the absence of your culture, the absence of your particular history and perspective and point of view. It's, it's one thing to have those things not show up in the school space. It's another thing to have to defend it. Yes. And I didn't want my children at such a young age to have to defend, you know, their, their skin, their hair, their ways of being. And I, once I saw my um, oldest daughter actually did go to um, one semester of middle school uh, while we were in Southern California. And I was always having to talk to a teacher, talk to a principal about something that a child said or even a teacher said one time. I mean, things that you just wouldn't believe that would come out of an adult's mouth. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. yeah about a child and I was just like okay no this will not this will not be your experience so yeah I homeschooled them uh for about five years until um I decided I was ready to go back to work yeah Oh, you get it. You know, I've been looking at the, the structures and the dynamics of well, social and education structures, actually, and how they affect a child's sense of their own identity. Uh, and it's often our women, um, mothers or caregivers, for example, who create the foundations for educating and safeguarding our children. Yeah. Now, I've been looking at this great book by an American doctor, actually, 
Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum. Yeah. Do you, have you heard of her? She she wrote a book called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, funny enough, Dr. Tatum was the my college president. Oh. Yeah, I attended Spelman College, which is a, a school here um, yes. for all for black women, um, founded in 1881, and Dr. Tatum was my president. And this, oh, wow. Okay. I know. This, this book is so very, um, has been really pivotal in my journey as an educator, and now as a diversity and equity um, leader, I use this book all the time. Um, I feel like it's a really good kind of primer to help to introduce people to this idea of basically why are why are all the black kids sitting together what is this self-segregation and how do, why does it happen and you know what do we need to what what can it teach us about where we actually are um, as a society as it, when it relates to race so yeah love Dr. Tatum in this book Oh, that connection's amazing. Well, I'm, I was really interested in, like, she did some really rigorous research. And what came out of reading it for me was that children are not given the tools or the vocabulary to talk about race. I'm interested to just to hear some thoughts from you about maybe some tools that you would impart to children at school or, or in any situation to help them process their observations and experiences because I've learned that it's so much more than about educating them about black history it's yeah. about educating them to deal with the experiences that they face each and every day yeah. how to process them and how to verbalize them and sometimes that'd be so difficult that the children choose not to share yeah. what's happening to them but yeah things that are particularly emotionally challenging just any just any thoughts that you may have on that that you have come across that have been useful for you so actually what I get to do I work for an education nonprofit um, here in New York City and um, and I am their diversity and equity director and so I get to help young people what we do is we put young people ages eight to 24 into schools. Um, they come from all across the country um, to serve for a year. And, and a lot of times they have either just graduated from high school and are not quite ready to go into college yet, or they finished college and want a gap year before they go to medical school or law school or something like that. And so they decide to give a year of service. Um, and so the program that I work with puts these young people into elementary and middle schools and they serve as tutors and mentors and um, after school workers um, in underserved neighborhoods here in New York City. And so one of the things that we've had to grapple with is how one, how do we go into these communities responsibly? Um, we were having so many issues that really boiled down to cultural, what I call cultural bumps, cultural differences that people are mostly unaware of. You know, we all show up into a space um, as our full selves with with things that we think about others, ways that we interact with people that are normal to us because it's how we've been socialized. And then when we go into other communities that have been socialized in, in ways that are different, um, 
we don't often recognize that it's a cultural bump that's happening there. And instead, what we were finding that our core members were doing, they were ascribing really negative characteristics to the children that they were working with and um, and the communities that they were serving in and, and causing real harm because of it. And our students were saying things to them like, you're racist. And this is, you know, students of color saying this to our white core members and you just don't like me because of this and that. And our white core members would be like, you know, why, why, are, they, why are they saying that to me? You know, like, I'm not racist. And what a lot of my work has been has been to help them to understand that their students are experiencing them in a very particular way. And it might not. Um, it's likely not because they intend that, you know, mm-hmm. um, it is these differences, these ways of these differences in the ways that we interact, the way that we speak, the way that we subtly ascribe value to people or devalue people in ways that we don't mean to. And so I've had to help these young people before they step foot into a school really grapple with themselves as racialized beings. And that mm-hmm. means having some really difficult conversations that are uncomfortable, conversations that they often don't want to have. Like, where do I stand? Where do I sit um, from a place of privilege um, as a white person, but also as a black or brown person, right? Because there are different levels of privilege. Um what 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 thoughts am I harboring about people who are different than me that are affecting my interaction? One of the things that I find is that for black and brown people to have these conversations, it can be really traumatizing because we are asking them to, in a lot of ways, share their pain, relive their trauma and speak about things that they probably have not spoken about before. They may have thought it, they may have felt it, um, but more than likely it's somewhere in their subconscious and we're asking them to dig and dredge all of this up Mm. and often for the benefit of the learning of white people. So one of the things that I have found that works really well is when I'm having these conversations, being it with students or young adults, is to have these conversations initially in affinity groups. Um, where people are together with people who share their same cultural identity. And there's a, a bit of a, uh, some safety in that because you don't, for people of color, you don't feel like you're teaching. And for white people who are meeting together in groups with other white people, they, they get to release that fear of saying the wrong thing, yes. that fear of offending somebody else. And they can ask their questions and they can grapple with the things that they're grappling with without having to worry about whether or not their their black or brown classmate is, is going to be offended or put off by the fact that they asked the question that someone else feels they should know. And so um, I and a girlfriend of mine who um, travels around the country um, doing diversity work and helping companies and schools to um, better attend to the needs of their student as it relates to race, we both really like to start these conversations in affinity, in affinity groups. Um, And then there is a time when we find that you can bring people together once people have done their initial processing that where you can bring people together to say, okay, so this is what this group is feeling and this is what this group is grappling with. Where do we go from here? How do we continue the conversation? 
And we do that also by setting some norms, um, some norms that say, like, we're going to have this difficult conversation. And you can do this with young children, with young adults, in affinity, in mixed race groups. But I find that setting norms for the conversation is really, really key and important. Things like let's be prepared to um, accept and expect non-closure. Whatever conversation we have, whether it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation that I'm having with my child or a whole conversation that I'm leading with um, my coworkers, let's, uh, let's not think that we're going to sit here and solve a problem today. Mm -hmm. You know, it is really about listening and being heard and, and understanding the power of story and, and that um, whatever we're processing, whatever we're working through, um, it's okay. And we don't expect that we're going to have closure on this event today. What we hope is that we get a little bit closer to better understanding one another. And, and so like that's, a, that's one of my favorite norms, listening um, to listen and not to respond. Um, and so when when children are sharing their their hearts with us and and and, um, and sometimes it gets emotional and there are tears and there are fears and there are worries. Um, one, I assure them that they're 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 going to, that it's going to be okay. Um, that if especially if I'm talking to children. You know, that there are adults in their lives who are prepared to listen to them and prepared to hold space for the weight of the emotions that they're going to share. And they're not going to be judged for those tears. They're not going to be judged for that anger. We are we are literally here um, to listen and to hold space for whatever um, those emotions may be. And then just assuring them that we can handle it and that it, it's going to be okay. When I have these conversations, like I said, with young adults, with other people's children, with, with my children, um, especially when you're talking about young children, there can be so much fear, you know, wrapped up when they're hearing stories and seeing the news about this unarmed black man being shot and, and you know, stories of Sandra Bland dying in police custody and all these kinds of things. Um, it can be really, really, it can cause a lot of fear and I just invite them to, to share, like, what are you feeling right now? Um, and whatever that is, it's going to be okay. And, and we're going to work through it together. Mm, that is such important work because there is so much fear um, attached to talking about our experiences as children. And I really wish that those groups were um, available when, when we were young, right? Because yeah. I remember, you know, when I experienced things, I kept them in until I was an adult. You know, they weren't talked about with anyone else. And so, so that's really important work. And, and also, um, I've been reading that quite often when the black or brown person gets to the point where they need to express something um, about their identity within that friendship, that is usually when the friendship comes to an end. Because what they found through research is, is that the white part, the white counterpart usually just, you know, wants to hang out and just enjoy the friendship. They want to have pizza and play sport and they just want to do those things. But it's absolutely vitally important that the black or brown 
part of the friendship person is able to when necessary express whatever is happening to them because of their race and their identity um, and quite often because there isn't any um, support or education in in verbalizing these issues for children um, it's a very difficult conversation and quite often the friendship can't evolve past that so yeah. what you're doing is so important especially the part where you said you know there's not going to necessarily be any closure we're not going to come to any answers today but we're going to listen and this is a safe space to express so that that is so important um and especially with with the times that we're in you know you as you said these are turbulent and very very difficult times for all of us the presidential elections approaching for you guys and um yeah as someone who is married to the movement i'm just really interested to know how you're feeling right now you know this is a big part of your life right now how, how is it for you you know um it is all consuming right now uh i have um two children my two oldest girls will be voting for the very first time um in this election and so they're really excited um they're they're paying attention um they're watching the debate but it's been really interesting to watch it through my children's eyes you know i think that i i tend to not be as politically involved or politically astute as as sean is you know my husband fully behind Bernie Sanders. And, you know, he is definitely my candidate as well. Um, you know, Bernie has really evolved when it comes to his understanding of issues that are important to people of color, particularly Black Americans, and even more specifically, um, the issue of police brutality and the criminal justice system. Um, and, and so he's really grown his understanding around that. And But what I also really appreciate about Bernie is um, you know, the things he talks about, whether he's naming race specifically or not, they affect our, our community. Mm -hmm. um, he talks about income inequality. No one suffers more under the weight of the imbalance of that than black people in, in this country. And so, you know, Bernie, people make fun of him because he's always talking about the billionaire class. And right. But I appreciate his, his economic message and understand um, that it matters, you know, understand that it has value to to our community. So I will personally be glad when it's over. You know, we can get on with the business of writing this this country that has just gone crazy. Um, and, and not that things have ever been perfect, but oh my goodness, I don't know that we've ever seen the likes of the president that we have um, in office now. So I will personally be glad um, for this country when it's over and hopefully we make a much better decision. But I'll also be glad because it has consumed my entire household. And I'm I, sure. Yeah, there are other things I need Sean's attention on. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we're going to wrap it up now. I could talk to you forever. Time's not always on our side. So what, what we're doing now to wrap this up, Ray, is that I'm linking all of my guests together just in a way um, that they can connect and ask questions to each other because they're all working with the same passions that drive them. So I'm just really interested to ask previous guests uh, where their head is at the moment, what their thoughts are at the moment in terms of the work that they're doing. And I've invited them to ask a question to my following guests. So 
I have a question yeah. for you, for my last guest. And now when they pose the questions, they're posing a question to an anonymous person that they know is going to be my next guest that works, um, you know, has similar passions, but they don't know who that guest is. And it comes from my previous guest, who's a creative director in London. So he works um, very much in the diversity and inclusion movement. Um, he works in photography and the arts and in advertising. And he's very passionate about women's rights. So his question was, what did you last year do to improve your workspace for black and brown women? I love that question. It's so specific. It is. Um, you know, well, I, I, I guess I feel kind of like I'm, I'm cheating a little bit because that is basically my job in a lot of ways <laughs> is to improve workspaces for, you know, for the benefit of, of people of color. And I would say that, you know, the thing that I did that I think, you know, had the, the biggest impact on, in black women experiencing, black and brown women experiencing a sense of belonging was instituting our affinity groups. Um, we did that on a staff level where um, we did race-based um, affinity groups and there was a group specifically for black people. There was another group that was um, specifically meant for um, people who would, you know, identify as brown and, and they were called our third culture group. And I, it's something that a, a friend of mine helped me understand and she actually named the group. And um, it, it, this idea of third culture, what it means to be in a country that is different from the your passport or the home country of your parents. And so you kind of grow up in their, their home country, the country that you're now living in, and you don't fit neatly into either one. And so you have kind of this third culture. And so we had the black group and we had the third culture group. And for the first time, people of color in our workspace who, because they worked in different departments and did different things, had not had an opportunity to interact and form relationships, got to spend time um, getting to know each other, reading literature, talking about it, talking about that, their experience as, as women of color in ways that they had not been able to do before. And it really, um, you know, they found a lot of community in those spaces um, and, and came to understand that they weren't alone in their experiences. Um, and there were things that just didn't have to be explained because they, the experiences were shared. And it really had a positive impact on um, like I said, just the sense of belonging that they got to experience. So yeah, I would say, I don't know that affinity groups are, are, are the answer or an answer for every workspace, um, but when done well and um, with a ton of intentionality, um, I've seen them really increase um, belonging. So yeah, that's, that's what I would say. That's amazing. Thank you so much. So, um, so Kevin Morosky, if you're listening, that's the answer that Ray has given you to your question. Um, and actually, we can all learn from that. So thank you so much for, for sharing that. And it's been an absolute pleasure, Ray. Thank you so very much. It's really been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Right. So that was Ray. Amazing. I hope you're all going to check out the North Star. There's urgent and important work going on there at the moment. It's their first year anniversary and to celebrate, Ray is kindly offering access to the North Star site for one month 
for five shade listeners. So I'd urge you to look at the site to see what's on offer, as well as Sean's article archive. There's safe, moderated discussion spaces, and there's early access to exclusive broadcasts and so much more. So here's what you have to do right now, as you're listening to this, write a review for Shade Podcast on the app you're listening to this on. And the first five reviews get free access to the North Star. I'll read out your review on the next show. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Hey!